Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Podcast. I'm your guest host, Adam Seidel, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Colorado. I'm here with Dr. Mark Kowalski, shoulder and elbow surgeon at Orthopedic and Neurosurgery Specialist in Connecticut. Mark, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for helping me guest host. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons Society, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have an episode on an exciting topic in shoulder and elbow surgery and orthopedic surgery in general, the topic of mission work and international mission trips. To help us with this discussion, we brought on a couple of outstanding guests that everyone knows very well and have a ton of experience in mission work. The first is Dr. Javier Duralde, immediate past president of ASES and orthopedic shoulder and elbow surgeon at Peachtree Orthopedics in Atlanta. Dr. Duralde, welcome to the podcast. Adam, thanks for having me. Next, we have Dr. Sean O'Driscoll, shoulder and elbow expert from the Mayo Clinic. Dr. O'Driscoll, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Adam. Pleased to be here. All right, let's get to it. So I want to start by hearing about some of the mission work that both of you have done and been involved in. As we're planning this podcast, we uh, surveyed many shoulder and elbow colleagues and your names, I have to say, just keep kept coming up over and over again as, as people involved in this work. So why don't we start with you, uh, Javier? Why don't you give us a little bit of your background with this type of work? Great. Uh, so I started um, mission work in uh, 1998, uh, started going to Haiti and uh, I've been going uh, whenever it's been safe enough to go for the last 20 years. Um, the our, our group, PC Orthopedics, started going there in the 1950s and we've continuously been providing orthopedic care for the Hôpital Albert Schweitzer in the Artibonite Valley in De Chapelle, um, Haiti. And so that's the majority of my um, mission work has been down there. Um, I've also started in the last couple of years going, going to Cuba a couple of times, which is slightly different because Cuba is obviously more sophisticated than Haiti. And it's been sort of a different type of mission, much more focused on education as well. Uh, but those were the two main uh, missions that I've, that I've been going to and the the Haiti mission obviously is, is, you know, very much third world and uh, there's limitations on what you can do because of uh, equipment restrictions and that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, this type of work really opens your eyes up um, to how good we have in the United States. And it also uh, helps you, you know, expand your horizons because you start to see the kind of pathology in other countries that you just don't see here. That's outstanding, Javier. Thank you for that. Sean, why don't you speak to your experiences? Yeah, thanks, Adam. Um, I uh, have been interested in missions for many, many years. And like some people I, I uh, have spoken with about this, um, there were quite a number of years that elapsed before I actually put it into practice. And so um, I have been uh, working in the mission field on and off for uh, 11 years, um, mostly in Africa, um, in a number of countries in Africa. But also in, um, I've been to Haiti a few times. Uh, Javier, I haven't been together with you, but I was really interested to hear your experience. Um, and also Asia, uh, China, Thailand. Um, 
so uh, it's been it's been varied, and uh, some of it has been um, uh, very more orthopedic in my area. Some of it has been more general uh, medical and orthopedic. That's great. Well, th thanks for your your thoughts and experience. I think there are so many of our members that are going to be interested in in learning from the both of you. I I'm curious if we hearken back to those early days. Uh, Javier and, and Sean, 11 years ago, what, what was it about medical service internationally that interested you? And looking forward back then, what, what were you hoping to gain from the experience? Well, I'll, I'll start, you know, the, um, our group had been going there for, you know, for, you know, 40 years by the time I got there. And um, it really, uh, from a selfish standpoint, it was a real form of camaraderie in our group, you know, people bonded you know, in adversity, sort of like when you're residents, you bond in adversity, uh, going to Haiti. And there's always, you know, great stories and, you know, all kinds of, you know, difficulties that were overcome and things like that that occurred during the uh, the, the, the uh, trips that, that always seemed very interesting. <clears throat> you know, I was, I, was, I was interested in challenging myself, uh, going to a place where they had different type of problems with, uh, equipment that was, you know, inferior to what I was used to using. And so that you, you had to have sort of a MacGyver kind of mentality to, uh, to be able to, to uh, you know, uh, succeed there. Uh, but I guess the, the bottom line is um, the, the realization that, that we are so fortunate to be in the United States, you know, and in the words of Warren Buffett, you know, so if, you know, if you were, you know, born in the United States, you, you, you've really, and a couple other things, you almost, you really won the lottery ticket, you know, and in Haiti, um, it's the poorest country in the Western hemisphere. And those people just really have nothing. And, and so to be able to go down there and help them, um, was just, uh, very important to me. And I think, you know, it's the sense that there's a, there's a large part of the population of the globe that doesn't have adequate healthcare available to them, especially uh, specialized areas such as, uh, orthopedics. You know, it's estimated that uh, that you know two thirds of the world's population doesn't have adequate orthopedic um, care, and so um, you know I think all of us went into medicine because we wanted to help people, and this is an opportunity to really help people a lot, and um, uh, and it takes a certain mentality to go down there and, and do it, but but uh, you know it's a typical story of you gain more than you give when you go on one of these mission trips. Yeah, I, I agree completely with that last statement, uh, Javier. Um, I uh, decided when I was in the ninth grade in high school that I wanted to at least spend some years in the future as a missionary doctor in Africa. As I mentioned earlier, I, that didn't materialize in the early times of my practice. And by the time I actually um, uh, set out to do so, I had become rather subspecialized to the point that I really wondered whether I had anything to offer whatsoever. And... Uh, that turned out to have been a fortunate thing in a way because I didn't go with any sense of what I had to offer. Um, I went with a sense of uh, what I needed to learn about what, um, how we could help and, and what the needs were. And so I, I planned on doing um, five very different mission trips in different parts of the world uh, before I would really get a, uh, try to decide what I thought maybe my role would be. And, that was very fortunate because I learned uh, I learned a lot that I wouldn't have learned otherwise, I think. 
my my saying became it's well, I do elbow surgery principally elbow and shoulder but my saying became it's not about the elbow or if I was in a place where it wasn't about elbow surgery and it was open tibia fractures say I would say it's not about the open tibia so the bigger picture became really important to me and I've learned that the relationships that we establish and the support that we have in an ongoing way even day to day uh, when we're back here uh, supporting people in the mission field has become uh, one of the highest priorities. That That's outstanding. So, you know, one of the things that I um, think about is, is, and Sean, you touched on this, is how subspecialized we all are. And, you know, one of the things I wondered, and you, you talked a little bit about it, but what are the, you know, as a shoulder and elbow surgeon, what are the most common surgeries that you're doing on these trips? And, uh, obviously, it looks like you've expanded beyond shoulder and elbow surgery in those trips, but you know, within the field of shoulder and elbow surgery, what what are you doing um, when you're doing these mission trips? Yeah, so I so I go to a variety of places, and and as a result of that, the spectrum of what I do when I'm there is uh, quite great, <laughs> quite great, uh, probably greater than the spectrum of what I do here. So uh, there are a couple of places that I go to, um, one in China, one in Ethiopia where I have been mentoring um, one or more surgeons um, and uh, have been doing so for between seven and um, might be in the range of eight or nine years uh, on a continuous basis. And so surgery that I do in either of those places ranges from just very, very complex stuff that we wouldn't even see here normally to very, very specialized. And um, so, so that's at one end of the spectrum. Um, I, uh, if I go to Guinea, which I go to on a recurring basis, um, it's at the very opposite end of the spectrum. I spend a lot of my time there, um, teaching, uh, or maybe reteaching people how to tie surgical knots, um, uh, the importance of scrubbing your hands, uh, these sorts of things <laughs> and, um, and leave pearls that I can, whether they're general orthopedic principles about managing a, a tibia or femoral fracture with a sign nail or um, very specifically about an elbow. And a lot of times it's things like, how do you salvage um, a bad elbow fracture dislocation when you have um, the, the, the smallest in, uh, implant you have is a 3.5 screw and um, you have uh, few plates and uh, no prostheses and so on. So how do, you, how do you deal with that? And I really enjoy that challenge, just like um, Javier, you were saying about how you really have to learn to improvise. Yeah, Adam, it really depends on where you go, what you can do. So like when I've been to Cuba, they do have arthroscopy there. And so when I've gone, I've taken all my anchors and my instrumentation with me. And, you know, at one point I was, you know, it was funny. I was, I was repairing a small rotator cuff here arthroscopically. And it was, I, I joked, it was like showing fire to the cavemen. They were so impressed with my surgical skills. You know, I felt good about myself that day. But, uh, but they said, well, we don't have a suture passer. So then I had to say, okay, well, let me show you how to do it without it. So you have to sort of modify your techniques to what's available to them there. Um, in when you go to the third world, it's very different because uh, the problems that you see there often have to do with old trauma, uh, congenital and developmental defects. Like in Haiti, there's a lot of rickets, for instance, you know, and then osteomyelitis, which we're not used to seeing here. And so those are the type of problems that you have to sort of a grade in your mind of how serious is this, how important is this, and what am I going to do? And frankly, in Haiti, we treat rotator cuff problems with Motrin. 
because really compared to the other problems that we see there, that just doesn't reach the level where you say it's worth trying to operate. Plus you don't have physical therapy. You don't have arthroscopy. So it'd be all open surgery. And so, um, so a lot of it's trauma that you're taking care of in the third world. Um, and, uh, and, and again, just like Sean said, you're often, you know, you're, 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 you're measuring for your screws on your plate and you say, you know, 16, they go, no 16. And then you go, well, what's close? You know, 20 All right, I'll take 20, you know, so your actors don't look so great afterwards, but, um, but, you know, you get the job done. And so you have to be, uh, you know, ready to adjust your techniques for the problems that are in the area in, in that particular area. And, and, and then you have to temper your enthusiasm. You know, you have to do the best, that can be done with the available equipment in that area. And the first couple of years, the, the group I went with in uh, Haiti, and it's interesting because Danny Guy would go, was went down there with me for many, many years. You know, we got to be close friends. So it was nice when he was president of the Academy, I was president of Shoulder and Elbow. We, we spent so much time together in Haiti. It was very easy to communicate. But, um, you know, the first few years we went down there, we got ourselves into trouble. We've been in the middle of an operation. We realized we really didn't have the equipment to complete it the way we planned it. And then as years went by, we developed a much better concept of what's what's feasible in that environment. And and then then we could do it, you know. So, so I think that's one of the benefits of going back to a place like that. And, you know, there's a, a steep learning curve. But once you uh, once you start feeling comfortable within that environment with those particular problems, and um, with the equipment you've got available to you, then then you'll get in and out of surgery uh, uh, much better. Yeah, you bring up something really. Oh, go ahead, Sean. I was just going to emphasize something that Javier just said, uh, because you bring up this aspect of having to adapt to the circumstances. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I have learned is, is that when we go to the mission field, we really um, should best be focused on what the needs are there, not what ideas we have about how we can improve it. And one of the greatest needs is to um, essentially mentor the surgeons there on how to learn. And so going there, not with our own equipment and things like that, but going there and being ready to deal with the problems with what they have available to them is something that requires us to learn in real time. And uh, they really greatly appreciate and benefit from that when they see us figure out what we would do if we were working in their circumstance, because that's where we are at the moment. And so that's a really good point you bring up. And I completely agree that, that you know, being prepared to adapt and teach them how we might adapt if we were there full time is, is really a, a very key thing. That's great. I think it, it sort of dovetails with a conversation of how to evaluate an opportunity when one's thinking about beginning medical service abroad. You talked about consistency, Javier going to the same place multiple times to gain a comfort level, and Sean's talked about identifying the needs of that community and catering to the needs. Are there other must-haves or critical issues to keep in mind when you're assessing opportunities for medical service abroad and organizations that you're looking to collaborate with? Well, it's interesting, you know, that we um, we have not been able to go to Haiti now for the last three to four years because it's been too dangerous, you know, just and, and it's and it's heartbreaking because, you know, the people that suffer are not the people that are causing the problem in the first place. And so um, so we've there's there's a huge interest in our group to continue mission work. 
And, uh, and so we started working, one of our uh, total joint surgeons has been working with a group called One World. And uh, they're, and they're sort of like um, uh, Operation Walk or something, I can't remember, something like that, 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 that has a similar sort of uh, thing, similar sort of uh, a process. And, and it's a little bit different because they go to different places in South America and the Caribbean and they take an entire team with them. So the entire OR staff, pre-op, post-op, and then they take tons of total joints and they'll go do 30 total joints in a week in a place. And usually the hospital has one surgeon there who uh, can do all the post-op care for you and that sort of thing. And, and it's sort of a different concept. But so there are organizations like One World and Operation Walk that you could look at and they've done primarily lower extremity, like total knee, total hip type of procedures. But I'm sure that something like that could be organized for the shoulder as well. Otherwise, it's kind of hard. I mean, we've always had this relationship with uh, with the hospital down in Haiti that our founding partner started in the 50s. You know, so we were lucky in that sense of being able to find them and and uh, get along with them. I met the president of the uh, Cuban Orthopedic Society at one of the meetings I was speaking at in Mexico. And he told me that they were having a big push to for minimally invasive surgery, invited me to Cuba. And that's how I started going to Cuba. Uh, and we did go do an academy trip down there as well. Same idea as sort of teaching. Um, so I think it's, um, Sean, maybe you could comment on that on how you found out all these different places you've gone to. Yeah. So I think that one, um, maybe, you know, there, there are several factors that are, are bigger factors when you're thinking about where you might go or what you might do. Um, one of them is that mission work is um, broadly um, divided into faith-based mission work and secular mission work. Um, they, are, they can look the very same in the field, potentially, uh, or, or the content of what you do there, you know, the, the work that you do can be the same, but, but the overarching purpose is, um, in, in one case is very related to faith in another, it's, it's only related to what you're doing It's humanitarian. So that would be an important thing. And I would encourage people to try to think in their minds, are they interested in one or the other or both? I do both types of mission work. Um, so that'd be the, the first thing. The second thing would be to, um, I, I would encourage people to not necessarily um, spend too much time worrying about or thinking about what your skills are that you bring, um, but rather finding out what the needs are and then what you might be able to contribute uh, as a result of that, that match, uh, because they may be very different. When we go with the idea of helping in a certain way, um, we we often end up generating a phenomenon that's known in the mission world um, that's referred to as helping um, or, or, or that you want to avoid, which is helping without hurting. Um, and so so we want to go and help without hurting. I said avoid. I'm sorry. I meant, I meant do. <laughs> I got mixed up there. But but you want to help without hurting. And, and we can inadvertently create a great deal of dependency in our mission work. And that's, you know, obviously an undesirable side effect of it. So, so it would be important to try to get a sense for uh, that aspect of it uh, by talking who, with people who are quite experienced in the field and very much so with the people who are at the destination you wish to go to. 
And there are a lot of places, there are places all over the world that desperately need people. There was a lineup of people wanting to buy a plane ticket and ready to go. Uh, we could arrange those things and establish connections with people. You know, there is an international committee of the um, AOS that uh, may have some connections as well in terms of, um, you know, what uh, places to go. The, the head of that committee is Guido Mara for a long time. He's rotated off of that, but he's one, he's an ASES member from Chicago and, and he's been involved with doing a lot of work. He's been going to Romania many times over the years doing, doing mission work there and really has elevated the whole level of shoulder care that's been uh, uh, provided in Romania. You know, just to dovetail one of the things that, uh, that Sean said, uh, you know, it's very important, you know, when, you know, when you first go on a mission trip, you say, oh, I'm going to save the world, you know, and, and you show up there and you're eager beaver and uh, it's just another week for them. You know, you have to realize that you're depending on the anesthesia staff, the nursing staff, the patients, all that sort of stuff. And you're there to help them and you need to work within their system and 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 that's how you can help the most you know not come with with preconceived ideas and you don't really want to underestimate the uh, the commitment or the intelligence or you know the motivation or skills of the people who are there i mean they're trying to do a good job and they can often teach you some things about how to deal with problems in that area you know just because they've been they've been dealing with a limited kind of uh, hardware availability, and they often come up with ingenious ideas that we hadn't thought of because we've got every you know trick in the book, you know, available to us in our own hospitals. I think that's. I think that those are great points. I, I love that helping without hurting. And I think one of the things that um, you, you think about in our practices here in the U.S. is our follow-up and how are we seeing these patients and. We're all, I think, very prideful as far as seeing our outcomes and seeing how patients do. So how, how do you handle that with this type of work? And I know obviously it's dependent on the setup and who follows your patients, but how do you follow that um, from a logistics standpoint uh, at certain locations, but also, you know, how do you, how do you handle that mentally, not knowing how your patients are doing, or do you get that information from orthopedic surgeons at the locations that you travel to. Javier, if you want to comment on that. Yeah, so um, the, the hospital in uh, Haiti has general surgeons. And so um, there's a general surgeon there that we depend on a lot for our follow-up. You know, we would communicate and back in the 90s, early 2000s, there was no internet. And so we just sort of, we sent three teams a year. And so the next team that uh, would, you know, would, give you your follow-up because you know the um, dr xa was following the patients and he'd tell you and, and then and then you'd you'd give the patients follow-up for um when the next trip was coming so that your colleagues would see that patient when they got back uh we you know with the internet now we can we can even get x-rays sent to us you know from from haiti to to look at um but but it is difficult and, and you find yourself trying to do operations that don't require any kind of intensive physical therapy because they just don't have access to that and i mean literally people are riding donkeys to come to the clinic you know it's crazy um you know the things that happen the first trip i went on uh i'm there and the guy comes to me and he's got a contusion of his hand you know a rock fell on it you know so got x-rays that look okay and I'm sitting there with a with a, a, a translator, and I'm telling him, "Well, I think it's just a contusion. I think you're going to be okay." 
uh, just put some ice on it and you'd be okay. And then the two of them are going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm saying, boy, they're talking a lot for this kind of translation. And then the guy turns to me and goes, where would he get ice? And then I realized they've got no electricity there. They've got no ice. You know, so some of the common things you think of are just normal treatments, you know, aren't, aren't valid there. So, you know, you got to kind of like adjust your thinking to, to what's what's available there. But 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 it's all part of that same concept of adjusting how what kind of treatments you offer patients, because you know that the follow up is going to be limited. Physical therapy is going to be limited. And Sean, I guess we can take that question to the next step is, um, you know, some of these locations that you're going to, you're doing surgeries that are quite complex and treating some uh, pretty severe conditions. How do you deal with a complication if you have it? Yeah, so uh, good question, because they're going to happen for sure. So um, if I'm aware that the, well, I, I, if there are complications immediately, if they're operative or immediately post-operative, then I would deal with that in the same manner that I would here with the limitations of the circumstances there. Uh, so that, that, that I think is a more general response to that question. But complications that show up after we're no longer there, um, I then just advise the surgeon. I, I have good communication with the surgeons I work with. Um, advise the surgeon, we go back and forth by email or WhatsApp or other mechanisms. And um, as to what I think might, might best be done, um, there'll be times when perhaps I don't know about the complications at all. That, that obviously is, is the likelihood that that can happen. Um, how we deal with it, you, you or Mark had asked earlier, you know, psychologically or mentally, that's very important. I think it's an extremely important thing to think about. And um, I think that that develops with time. Maybe Javier, over time, you, you might have felt that that was something that developed for you, or maybe some people have it right away. Um, but it can be difficult, and it's an important thing to, to um, uh, I think, be intentional about um, acquiring the, uh, I wouldn't call them skills, or their, their personal, their intrapersonal skills to manage uh, those situations. But that requires, um, and, and, and is uh, readily available to deliver to you, uh, humility. And uh, some of the things that Javier was saying, and many others, really um, rapidly confront you with the need for humility. Um, you should, you know, we really need to check our pride uh, in the parking lot at the airport before we board the plane, because if we don't, we're, we're, we're in for trouble, quite frankly. So dependence on, on, uh, on, on yourself is not a good idea. Yeah, I think that's Incredible. a great way to yeah. say it, John. That humility is so important when you go there because you're doing your best and you're giving people care that they otherwise wouldn't have. And, you know, when I mentioned earlier, we were trying to do too much, you know, often you're, you're putting in hardware without fluoro, for instance, you know, because you just don't have fluoro. And so we would get x-rays after surgery, then find we had intraarticular hardware. So the first case the next day was to, you know, remove that one screw that was a little bit too long, you know, which was you know, kind of humbling to do that. Um, you know, we had one week where we had, it had seemed like it happened every day, you know, and so it was a different joint. And we say, you know, we told, we're joking with one of the doctors, he's going for the cycle because he left the hardware in every joint in the body, you know, by the time we left, you know. And so, uh, you know, so it, it's crazy because one day, one, one year we got there and they go, oh, thank God you're here. We have a patient here who's got POS disease and he's progressively paralytic. And he had like a, you know, a T7 
you know, abscess. And so we all look at each other and the three of us who were there were a hand surgeon, a total joint surgeon and me, a shoulder surgeon. And we're all like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? You know, so and we had a resident with us. And so we got Campbell's out. We got the book, you know, when we put the patient prone and we were able to evacuate this, you know, big abscess and stuff. But it, but it's a little scary and you worry you're going to kill somebody. Um, you know, so it's so something you have to you have to tell yourself, I'm doing the best I can. I'm helping these people and and some things aren't going to go the way I want. Uh, there's another case that it wasn't an operative case, but I had a patient comes in and he had this huge osteosarcoma of his distal femur. And then, you know, I palpated his groin. He had positive lymph nodes. And uh, and he said, well, what should we do? I said, well, really nothing to do. You know, just use, put him on crutches. You'd be careful. Don't Because there's nothing to offer the guy. You know, there's no chemotherapy there. There's no kind of, you know, radiation, nothing available. And the guy was a goner. But, you know, all you could tell him was, you know, use crutches. Be careful. The bone might break if you're not careful. But there's no other treatment to offer, you know. And that sort of gets you right in the gut because you realize the kind of treatments we have available to us in the United States and just not available there. Yeah, it's these are some heavy intellectual and emotional issues, and we've talked about the complex cases that you tackle. I guess on behalf of our youngest members, you know, as you look back and look forward, wh- how do you think interested surgeons should consider timing of medical uh, service abroad? They're obviously going to be balancing, you know, starting a new practice, trying to get research off the ground, if that's an interest of yours, and then an interest in medical service. What's the ideal timing or the right timing to get this type of work started after you leave training? Sean, why don't you take that one? Well, it, it, we, I, I think we almost uh, did it from opposite directions, Javier and me, because, you know, you started in right away. And... Um, and I had this uh, desire to do so, and there are a number of things that uh, reasons for which I ended up not. Um, th- th- I think there turned out to be a real benefit for me that um, by the time I did, I was already so specialized because that that really opened my eyes to things that I, I think I would have been blind to. But my recommendation to people is to go as soon as you possibly can, because the big barrier for most people is actually um, picking. A, a range of dates that they're going to go and buying a plane ticket, um, meaning that they're now going. Um, and, and so I've learned that there are countless of our colleagues and friends who would love to do this. And uh, so one of the one of the roles I have right now is bringing people into the mission field. And I do that on a kind of one on one basis. Um, and every single one has you know really found that to be uh, the launch of, of for them, the interest in missions and it put into practice. So I would encourage you, if you're interested, to um, find some, talk to somebody who's involved and say, hey, listen, you know, I'd like to go on a mission trip and, and just go. Don't try to customize it to anything personal about yourself, I would say. Um, it's good if you can go with an attitude that it's not about me. That's a really good attitude to go with. It's not about me. And... Um, so do it early, I think. I would agree with that. Do it early because especially, you know, during your residency, you've had to sort of figure out a lot of things and and you've got the latest, greatest sort of techniques under your belt. And uh, one other factor I think kind of dovetails into what Sean just said is that many of us have brought our children on these mission trips, you know, especially they get the high school, college age. And this really opens their eyes to the world, 
to see, you know, what what the third world is like, and you know, lucky they are to be in the United States, and and uh, and and I think it fosters a sense of desire to continue to do mission trips in in younger adults, and so that's another added benefit of it. So I think the sooner you do it, the better. You know, really, it's like a week away from the office. You know, most of the time, depends if you're going to China or Thailand, it may be longer, but you know, certainly the Caribbean, Central America you could go down there for a week and come back and it's not that much time away from the office. And it's just, it's just, uh, it's unbelievable the benefits you get from, from going, not only the help you're giving people, but what you learn and how you grow as a person, how you grow in your faith. I think that's very important too. what Sean was saying. I mean, I think, I think those are uh, great points. I think it's very, you know, it's interesting uh, as Sean alluded to you guys, and kind of had very different approaches to this. Javier, you got uh, very involved early on. And Sean, you waited till you were well into your um, career. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I think there's there's hope for all of us that you can take either approach. And even later, you know, I, I am personally going on my first mission trip uh, coming up in December to Honduras. And, you know, just kind of out of luck, we uh, hired a, a hand faculty member who was involved, heavily involved in that in the past, and I'm I'm kind of just latching on to his group and and going down for the first time. But it's something that I've, you know, honestly, I've thought about since I was a resident as as far as getting involved. And I think the the longer you wait, the harder it can be with all of our busy schedules, families, and so forth. So I, you know, I I personally wish I would have done it sooner. But I do think for those that haven't done it, uh, I think the the take home and, and Sean can um, can can say this as well is that you can still do it later on or several years into your career. So I appreciate that. I think one of the things to keep in mind is, you know, uh, my first job in 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 orthopedics was the military, it was the Air Force, and and I was frustrated in the Air Force in that not being able to be as efficient as I wanted to be, you know, because. Somebody control my resources. They didn't let me do as many cases as I wanted to, see as many patients as I wanted to, that sort of thing. And so I've always been someone that's tried to like pack in as much work as I could in the briefest period of time and really just be super efficient. And then you go to a place like Haiti and you can't be efficient. It's extremely frustrating because you're working in their system. And I came back from like my first or second trip and I was extremely frustrated. And I was thinking to myself, um, God, I don't know if I want to go back there. It's so frustrating to go down there and not really be able to get everything done that you want to get done. And they don't really, you know, appreciate us, blah, blah, blah. And I was in the doctor's lounge between cases and there's a plastic surgeon there uh, who um, had done a lot of mission trips. And, and he said, just what Sean said, he goes, it's not about you. It's about them. You know, it's you're going down there to help them. And, you know, you have to work in their system and 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 not go down there with preconceived uh you know notions and and i'm just kind of a firm believer that sometimes god talks to you through people you know and that was god talking to me right there saying you know get over it keep going and 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 that was like the second or third time i'd gone and you know i went you know a lot more in another 20 years and, and a lot of it was just sort of I, I my eyes were opened at that point like yeah it's not about me it's about them
I would maybe dovetail into that um, in a way um, that I mentioned earlier that, you know, broadly speaking, missions are either faith-based or humanitarian, non-faith-based. Um, for those of you who would be interested in faith-based missions, um, uh, Javier just said, you know, it strengthens your faith. I would say to you that um, it is probably one of the most profound ways in which you can um, uh, challenge yourself and be confronted uh, in your faith and uh, the most profound ways in which you end up growing as a result of it. So to experience, for example, um, dependence on God as a surgeon, and you're normally dependent on maybe your team and yourself and, you know, your instruments and so on, which we are in the places where we work. Um, but to, to be willing to be dependent on God um, reveals things to you that you just may not ever experience in life any other way. So I, I go with the full expectation, and this is, by the way, whether this is a faith-based mission or not. So I go to very secular um, places, uh, but I go there with the full expectation that um, I'm going to come back just marveling at how I saw God work. And um, it's, it's just an incredible joy. Um, for those for whom faith uh, would not be a component of it, I would encourage you to see if you can have an opportunity to witness what that's like in a faith-based mission, um, not for the purpose of changing your faith, but for the purpose of seeing what it's like there. Because humility is evident everywhere and dependence on um, factors other than yourself is clearly abundant. And it's an incredible uh, experience for uh, for anyone, regardless. So I've brought people of um, non-faith to uh, places, and, um, and and many places will regularly accept somebody for whom faith is not part of it, as long as they understand that that's a big part of the mission itself. The people there are so grateful. You know, we used to joke that, you know, in, in Haiti, you'd say, uh, you need surgery, and they'd say, thank you. And, you know, here, you know, you'd say the patient, you need surgery, and they're like, well, what are my other options? And I think I need a second opinion. And could you refer me to somebody better than you? You know, things like that. It's just like, you know, it's night and day difference in terms of the gratitude yeah. the patients have there for, for what you're offering. I think that's that's great. Uh, you both talk about bringing your, your whole selves to to the project, whether it's faith-based or not. And I guess I, I would just ask maybe sort of in a moment of introspection, you know, is there something that you've learned about yourself on these missions and service trips? You've talked about sort of the camaraderie you get, the exposure to pathology, the respect for the patients and communities in which you work, but are there lessons or, or, or things that you've learned about yourself that you've brought back to your work and family at home through this, through, through this experience? I think for me, it's um, it's I've learned how lucky I am, you know, and all the opportunities that I've had um, to get to where I am right now and how uh, you can't take those things for granted. You know, uh, in Haiti, there's not a street that doesn't have potholes in it. You know, when you, your wife picks you up from the airport and you drive on a smooth road back home, just that by itself is a gift, you know, and and you just realize everything about your life has been so fortunate that um that you need to complain a little less you know and you need to give people a break and um uh, and and not be critical and uh and just be thankful for everything that you've gotten and be a little bit more understanding in terms of uh what other people don't have 
And, uh, and I think, you know, from a social standpoint in our country, you know, we have, you know, here we are going overseas to help people. And there certainly are a lot of people in the United States that need help as well. And we don't have a good mechanism to do that, you know, um, in our current system. And so uh, I think you, you, you gain empathy uh, when you, when you see the, the, the position people are in and then, and you become more thankful too, um, because, um, you just realize that, that you have a lot to be thankful for. Yeah, I agree. I was thinking there's a really good question. Um, I, I, I think that, um, one of the greatest things, uh, that I have experienced and learned is that, I, I think people who would be with me would say that I'm a, I'm a very much better person when I'm in the mission field. Um, I think what it has to do with is that when I have no control over the situation and I'm just dependent on the resources there, the people there, and God, um, aspects of my nature come out that generally might not come out when I am in control, when I uh, have the, the the right to be impatient with somebody, if you know what I mean, um, saying that tongue in cheek. But it it really brings out aspects of, uh, of character that um, we might be a little bit less likely to experience um, here. And so I, I'm not sure that I've been able to express that very well, um, but we we grow as we, especially as we become uh, perhaps as we rise up in our careers, we, we become somewhat, uh, shall we say, entitled in our minds. We become entitled to um, proper technique in the OR, entitled to time efficiency, entitled to a lot of things. And when we go to somewhere like we've just been speaking about, we're not entitled to anything, anything. <laughs> and um, for you to really contribute and feel that you have left that place a better place and help the people to be better off when you have entitlement to nothing there um, requires a very different approach. And as you experience how to do that, um, you, you feel a much greater level of joy. So I always come back a more joyful person. I think I've um, really changed as a result of that. And um, uh, Javier mentioned bringing your family. I brought all my family, all my kids uh, to the mission field, both as a family and individually. Um, and that's been life-changing for them. I started when they were about 13. So I would encourage you to take your families as well. Yeah, I think well, a, a, a couple of points is to add to that is one, you, one is you really have to have the attitude, I'm going to go and help some people and I'm going to go home. And, and you know, it's, it's sad. I mean, I've been heartbroken sometimes on the flight back thinking about the people we didn't get around to treating because we ran out of time. And, and you just have to have that attitude. I'm going to go help some people. You're not going to change their system. You're not going to change the world. But if you can just help a few people, that, that makes a difference, you know. So you have, to, you have to be willing to accept that and accept the fact that you can't help everybody. Uh, the other thing, though, is that, uh, as, you know, we get very specialized in the shoulder world. And I had one year where normally three surgeons all went down together and, we, you know, we could handle clinic and surgery and all that sort of stuff. And at the last minute, something happened where I had to go down by myself. And it was like suddenly I had to handle clinics and surgery and everything by myself. And uh, and I would joke that I would stand in front of the mirror in, in, each morning and I'd, I'd tell myself, 
I'm the best orthopedic surgeon in this country. <laughs> and then I'd go tackle whatever I could do, you know, and you realize you could still do a lot of other, you know, cases other than the shoulder. So those are those are awesome comments. So, uh, you know, I think we're winding down on time. So I just want to tell you both, Javier and Sean, thank you guys so much for coming on and sharing your experiences. I think this will be so helpful for um, all the listeners and those interested in doing this work in the, in the future, uh, hearing these experiences, hearing your thoughts on on this process and the, the work that you've done, I think is, is um, outstanding. So um, I also want to thank you, Mark, for helping me co-host and for all our shoulder and elbow listeners out there. Don't forget to subscribe. And on behalf of the regular ASES podcast hosts, Pete Chalmers and Rachel Frank, I'm Adam Seidel, and we will see you next time.